Father, you are amazingly gracious and kind to us in giving us your word and giving us the ability to know you, uh, giving us, Lord, forgiveness of our sins, which was purchased by the blood of your Son. Father, I pray that this morning, Lord, that we would see you afresh, that we would be amazed at the detail in which you form and create all things and how you have placed our lives together and how you work all things together for the good. Lord, speak to us through your word that we would be amazed at you and that you would be glorified in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. The word of God never changes. The meaning of the word of God never changes. But culture changes. And even our understanding of ourselves change. Our account today will highlight this truth for us as we read about another man healed by the master teacher. We'll highlight how we are wrong in what is truly important and what is not, and even tell us why this is the case. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. As he passed by, Jesus had the power to heal as he chose. He also had the, pe- the power to bring people back from the dead. He had the power to stop all pain, all suffering. And this single sentence proves that there was pain and suffering happening all around him. This man, who Jesus just casually walks past, was sitting alongside that walkway, begging for money in order to survive. This was his life. This had been his life for his entire life. While other children played, learned to read, learned a trade, enjoyed the creation and culture around them, this man did none of this. He learned how to sit on the side of the road and beg to survive. Up until the last 50 years, those with disabilities had always been treated as lesser than by the general population, had always been cast aside, set aside, and very often completely neglected, being seen as an embarrassment to their family. This was the life that this man had known his entire life. It had always been this way for him. And Jesus passed by, seeing, them, seeing him sitting there. How many others did Jesus just pass by? How many other pains, hurts, sorrows did he encounter on a daily basis and do nothing to stop or prevent? Am I implying that Jesus was heartless, that he was cruel? Well, logically speaking, if you can do something to stop pain and suffering and you don't, that's cruelty. Here is the first way that humanity has changed, how our culture has changed and how we have changed. We place supreme value on ourselves. Now, you might want to correct me and argue that we as a culture place supreme value on all people. But the reality is that we don't. We murder babies because they're inconvenient and call it a woman's reproductive choice. We separate the old and lock them up and call it professional care, when more often than not, it's not professional and it's not very caring. These people, those babies, those elderly, are getting in the way of us having our best life now. 
No, we place supreme importance on ourselves, on our life, on our comfort. And for this reason, when we read this account, it's easy for the atheist to make a charge about Jesus and saying, if he is God, then God is not good because he allows suffering to happen when he could do something to stop it. And because the focus of so many evangelicals is on this life, we do not have an adequate response to them. And the disciples, the question that they asked Jesus also shows how we've changed as a culture as well. Verse 2, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is the first time in three chapters that we actually have heard from the disciples. But that's not to think that we shouldn't think or, or even assume that they hadn't been talking or asking questions to him. It's just not recorded for us. But the fact that they ask this question and the manner that they ask it is given to us in such a way that it implies that this type of question to their master was very common. And the question itself is very good and reveals also the prevailing thought of the day. Lord, why is this man blind and we're not? In their minds, sin was the cause of this blindness. Either his, they couldn't know at this point that he had been born this way, so it couldn't be his, or his parents. Now certainly, there are verses from the Old Testament that point to God punishing sin in this matter. Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, sins, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. And even Psalms 89, verses 31 and 32, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their, transgre their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. These men, the disciples, held that sin was a real issue, that God really dealt with sin. This was the prevailing thought in humanity all the way up to the Reformation, because Calvin's commentary on this verse speaks to the human tendency to see sin in others first and not ourselves, that we are quick to look at those who fall on hard times, that have an accident, were born with an infirmity and throw the sin card at them very quickly and at the same time are very slow in recognizing just how much judgment we deserve for our sin. But today, in our culture, even within the church, sin plays no part in the equation. Zero. We think that we've arrived to the pinnacle of understanding and thought. We know why that man was born blind. We think that we get life, that we've got life all figured out. We've mastered life and broken it down into mathematical equations. We know all the variables, understand the rules, and even teach them as facts to our children. Be nice. Be polite. Apply yourself in school. Don't do drugs. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Go to college. Don't overeat. Exercise regularly. Get a good job, and you will be successful. Have a good life. All the good things that this life has to offer for you. You will have your happily ever after here. One plus one equals two. We even teach the opposite of this, because if that's subtraction or addition, then this is subtraction. It works this way. Man, that apple fell far from that tree. That guy came from a good family, but you can't expect anything different from him. He messed around in school. He did drugs. He had sex outside of marriage. So of course he would be on welfare. Four minus three equals one. But even in subtraction, sin is never mentioned or even thought about. We have removed God from our society rejected his law, his math, and in doing so, we are in violation of his law, of his math. This is sin. 
But I want to be careful in this admonition because as we will see, personal sin is not always why suffering happens. But be sure there are times in a person's life when sin is the issue why there is suffering. There was a point in my life when I was dealing with chronic pain, and I went to my pastor and I told him about it, and I asked him to pray for me. That man looked me in the eye, and the thing that he said, he asked me, is there any unconfessed sin in your life, David? I so appreciated that in him. I appreciated that he rightly understood that God can and will afflict us because of sin. Revelation 3.19 tells us, The Lord says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. We will all answer for every careless word that we have spoken. Matthew 12.36 tells us that. And even Romans 14.12, So then, each of us will give an account to himself to God. And Peter understood that even though we are the elect of God, that we are the chosen of God, that we are the apple of his eye. We will be judged by God for what we have said, done, and even not done and said. But there is a difference, though. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The difference is, that our judgment is not going to be the eternal kind. Our judgment will be here in this world and in this reality. But let us never forget that it is God who is behind all of it. He knows that suffering is good for us. That ease, vacations, luxury, all cause his sheep to become fat and lazy and easy prey for wolves. We, the apple of his eye, the sheep of his fold, may suffer here where it seems that those outside of his fold don't. But we need to understand that they are being fattened for the slaughter. And that slaughter will come. It will happen. And it will last for all eternity. And they, just like us, deserve everything that comes our way. But more importantly, when we suffer here and suffer well, God is glorified. When in the midst of a loss of a dearly loved spouse, we can say like Sarah Edwards in writing to her daughter concerning the death of Jonathan Edwards, her dear husband. She wrote, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Or like Job, when he had everyone of his children killed, 
and lost every earthly possession in one day. He said, He arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Yahweh gives, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Here's a fact that we must learn to wrestle with, to deal with. God is behind all suffering. Sin may not be the issue, may not be the reason for it, but rest assured that God is. A fact that Jesus stated in that next verse on that day. He answered verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now on the surface, that statement seems to get God off the hook and stating that he wasn't born blind because God was punishing him for sin, his or his parents. But in reality, it creates an even more uncomfortable reality for us. If this man had been born blind because of sin, we could use our addition or subtraction equations to logically explain it. But Jesus is clear. There was no sin involved in the careful and perfectly thought out plan to have this man born blind. It was done for God. It was done that the works of God would be displayed in him. This is where correct biblical theology <coughs> excuse me, is important. If we place importance on this reality, on this life, above and beyond the eternal reality and the eternal life, then the logic and reality that Jesus just said makes no sense and holds no weight. But when we understand that we are the clay and that God is the potter, that we are not the same as he and that we don't deserve anything, any good thing from him. When we understand that this life, this reality is just kindergarten in our educational life and that when we enjoy the here and now in this reality and think that humans actually have value outside of God, We can't understand this, but it's when we find eternal worth, goodness, and value in him, it's then that this statement can begin to make sense, begin to resonate within our souls. It's then that we can endure suffering well in our own life and bring glory to God, knowing that just like, just like this man who had suffered his entire life, the works of God are being displayed in us as well. And Jesus is about to shed some light on how this all works. Verse 4. He said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus then explains how these works of God are going to be displayed within this man. In this verse, he uses that term, we. And that term, we, has a couple of different meanings. First, it means the triune we, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father, all working together. But even more importantly for those disciples when they heard this, and even for us, that we includes them and us. Here's grace in action. Here, he includes these ordinary sinful men in his extraordinary and heavenly calling. As long as it is day, we must be doing the works of the one who sent him. Wait, we get to be included in this? We're not going to just be mere bystanders, they're thinking. We get to be the conduit of grace of God in sinners' lives? Wow! We don't deserve this kind of privilege this honor or this joy. This was the message of Christ for those men on that day. This is the message of Christ 
for you on this day. It is still day, and Christ is still the light of the world. And for this reason, we should be. No, we must be doing the works of the one who sent him. And to show them and us what these works look like, Jesus goes outside of the box. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now, who in the world would have ever come up with the idea of making mud out of spit? Who would do such a common, unorthodox, and vulgar thing like spitting in the dirt and then putting the mud on the eyes of a poor blind man? I don't care if you use fancy words like anoint or not. Jesus just spit on the ground, rolled that spit into dirt, picked it up, and rubbed it on this man's eyes. Think of this encounter from the perspective of that blind man. Put yourself in his position. He's sitting there on the side of the road, minding his own business, when off in the distance he can hear some people coming. He hears these men coming and probably hears that question asked once again, that shame-filled, horrifying question concerning why he was born blind, why he was the way he was. And then in his shame, he begs from these men again. But then something strange occurs. These men stop in front of him, and one of them says something that he's never heard before. It wasn't because of sin that he was blind. It was for the glory of God. This is radical. This is amazing. This man had to have been on the receiving end of the reality of people many times in his life because people are not kind. They're cruel. They're mean, and they lash out at others that are different than themselves. And I'm sure that this man knew this truth very personally. And now this group of men stop in front of him. They have this conversation about him, which doesn't start well, but it seems to end well. And then he hears this noise. Wait, that sounded like someone just spit. And then out of nowhere, he feels these hands on his face rubbing something kind of wet and sticky on his eyes. Nice. Real nice. This guy who seemed to be nice, who seemed to be on my side, just spit on the ground and rubbed it on my eyes. And now to add insult to injury, he is telling me to get up and walk over to a pool that I've never seen, that I've heard is more than 20 feet deep, to go there to that pool and wash my eyes. And when we come back to the end of verse 7, there are two amazing things that happen. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Maybe you think that this man going isn't amazing. Perhaps you think that it's just a natural thing for someone to do in obeying Jesus. But we have to remember that there were no paved roads, no handicapped accessible places for this man to walk. And he could have just refused. He could have just sat there dejected, feeling picked on, feeling hurt, lost, with mud on his face. But walk he did, and he came back seeing Sometimes the Bible can take an amazing and extraordinary event, the kind of blow your mind kind of things, and explain it like this. He came back seeing. Kind of like the time that Abraham walked with God on the way to Sodom and negotiated with him over the lives of the people in Sodom. Can you see what I mean? You're sitting there saying, so? Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham knew that he was talking and walking with God. That he was talking with him. And he negotiated with him. It's mind-blowing. And here, this man, who had never seen a single thing, not a color, not a hair, 
not a speck of dust or dirt came back seeing. And everything that he saw on the way back, he saw for the first time. This is not the same thing as seeing a new place for the first time. He had never seen that building before. He had never seen a building before. Did you see that sky today? Talk about blue. He had never seen the sky before. And he came back looking for a man who has gone silent. The direction that Jesus gives this man to go to the pool of Siloam and wash will be the last thing that we hear from him for 26 verses. But what we're supposed to understand is that everything that has happened up to this point and everything, everything that happens after it is about Jesus, the sent one, the light of the world, and the creator himself that placed the same substance on this man's eyes that he, this man, was made out of. And this man, who had never seen before, didn't go to his parents. He didn't go home or to whatever friends that he had proclaimed that he was able to see. He came back to the place that he used to sit and beg. He came back looking for the one that had sent him, the one that had said that his being blind from birth was for God to be displayed, his works to be displayed in him. And he came back because the first work of God had been displayed in him. What we read about here is the sixth miracle listed in the book of John by Jesus. The first was the changing of water into wine at the wedding feast, John 2. The second was the healing of the official son in Capernaum, John 4. The third was the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5. The fourth was the feeding of the 5,000, John 6. And the fifth was John wa or Jesus walking on water, John 6, 16 through 24. And as, as John has told us in chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus did many more signs and wonders. Some of them are given to us in the other Gospels. The majority were never written down. But the miracles that are given to us in the book of John and in the Gospels are given to us for specific reasons. There are specific, specific instances and events that happened and are purposely written down to carry us along in the revelation of Jesus as the Christ. And this one is no different. From the beginning, Jesus demonstrated his ability to create and recreate his creation. He demonstrated his control of the things that are outside of the control of normal mortal humans. He revealed he was not controlled by the laws of nature, time, and space. That he controlled and ruled those laws. And at the same time, he demonstrated the love that he had for humanity. He did this in the personal care and touch that was the hallmark of his life, all the way to the end of his life. He really does love us. He really did have compassion for his creation. And we really are the apple of his eye. Again, think about the fact that this man, the one that was born blind had lived his entire life as a pariah in society. There was this polite disdain for the poor, the lame, and the blind. They were seen as less than by everyone else. But more than that, they were shunned. They were cast aside and lived on the edges of society, which is why the personal touch of Jesus in this man's life is so startling. Yeah. Spitting on the ground to make mud may seem out of the box for us. But even more out of the box for these people was the fact that Jesus would kneel down and touch this man. Because the infirm, the lame, the blind were seen as cursed by God. You didn't want to get any of that on you. You didn't want to defile yourself and perhaps have their sin affect and infect you. They were the untouched. And time and again, Jesus touched them before healing them. 
This then brings us to verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. But others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept on saying, I am that man. You may wonder how these people who had seen this guy their entire lives wouldn't have recognized him. But the radical change of being able to see probably brought new expressions to this man's face and even a new vigor to his, to his countenance. And they were seeing him do things that they had never seen or expected a blind person never to do again, like walk around and talk. So they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered them, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go, wash to, or go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. There's got to be some irony in the fact that they're asking a formerly blind man what someone looks like. Especially since he never saw this guy. But that's what these people did. They asked this blind man where the man who had made him to see was. The interesting thing is they should have known. They should have known where Jesus was. They should have been more interested in the one who can make the blind see, make the lame walk, and make the dead rise. More interested in him than they were in their own little petty lives. But they weren't. Man, were they blind. Stupid. But what about us? How many today are doing the exact same thing? Even those who claim to be saved. They're so busy with their small, petty lives, thinking that they are all important, that they miss Jesus completely. How many of them live their lives completely oblivious to the one that brings eternal sight and heals eternally? And when the Lord works in the lives of those around them, they are like these people, wondering where that man is who did such a thing. How come it never happens in my life? It's just that foreign to them. And then we come to verses 13 and 14. They brought the to, fair, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now why would they do this? Why would they bring this man to the Pharisees? Well, because kneading dough was on the strictly forbidden list of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. And by definition, making mud was the same work as kneading dough, which is why the no longer blind man was asked how he was made to see, and he told them that Jesus had made mud. They got hot under the collar, and they took this man to the local officials. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. The situation wasn't looking good for this formerly blind guy. He could probably sense that something was amiss. He had never had any dealings with the local officials before. And although he had been blind, there was nothing wrong with this hearing. And he knew what happened to people who got on the wrong side of these guys. Again, don't forget that up until about an hour or so ago, he had never seen anything. And now he's seeing everything. He had never seen the temple, never seen a Pharisee, never seen the inside of the local religious leaders' council chambers. And thanks to Jesus, he got to see all of this. Why couldn't Jesus have healed me on a Sunday? Didn't he know what day today was, that it was a Sabbath? Didn't he know that kneading was forbidden? Didn't he know the trouble that he would be causing me in violating these rules? But maybe these guys will let me go soon. Because I didn't tell them that Jesus had made mud. I just told them that Jesus had put mud on my eyes. Now maybe that I've answered their question, they'll let me go. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? 
And he said, he's a prophet. Letting him go was not going to happen. Not yet anyway. Before this would happen, these men who had never even spoken to this man before do something completely startling. They ask him his opinion. Think about this. This is like the Supreme Court justice arguing over a ruling and being in disagreement. And because they are in a disagreement, they ask the witness to make the decision for them. The response by this man, the one who up until that day been blind, the one who up until this conversation had no voice in matters of any kind doesn't hesitate. He didn't falter. He had an opinion. He knew that no mere mortal could make him see. Only God or someone sent by God could do that. He's convinced of this fact. I was blind and now I see. Dear ones, we can often get blurry or confused about what it is to bring glory to God. What things we must do to make this a reality. We think that we have to do great things like start a school, a church, become a missionary or a street preacher. Or because we don't understand what it is, we don't even know. And we don't do anything to bring glory to God. So we just give up. This man brought glory to God. How? First of all, through the years of blindness that he had endured because of God, he brought glory to God. Don't be confused about this. It wasn't an accident that he was born this way. It didn't just happen and Jesus decided to use it as an example. Nor did this man choose to be born blind, choose to beg for his entire life, choose to be sitting there on that day, or choose to have mud wiped on his eyes. Jesus was very clear about all of this. This man was born blind purposefully in order that the works of God could be displayed in him. Without the years of pain and sorrow and blindness, there would have never been the ability for Jesus to reveal once again his divinity. This is the first way that this man brought glory to God. He had lived a life of suffering. This is an unpopular biblical truth. One that many, if not most, evangelicals won't support. And because of that, they won't, because they won't support it. Acknowledging or even acknowledge or teach it, the Christianity that they preach and teach and hold to is weak. It's anemic. And it's easily refuted. If there's a God and he controls all things, it's a supreme creator of all things and does not desire any to perish, then why is there pain and suffering? And the answer? Well, we give him a weak answer. Well, that's not his desire. But humans brought sin into his creation. And now we just have to deal with it. Wrong answer. God is sovereign, which means that he is sovereign over everything. Not some things, not most things. He is either sovereign over all things or he's sovereign over nothing. And before you decide that you will choose the nothing answer, because it gets your God off the hook, including in that nothing would be the salvation as well. He would not be sovereign over it either, meaning that no one could be secure in salvation simply because it's not under his sovereign control and authority. No, he is the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in, and in him all things hold together. In Job chapter 12, 
verse 10 tells us, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. This would include the life of the man that was born blind. Your life and every life from the per of every person from Adam moving forward. But what about all the pain and the hurt and ugliness? What about the baby that was born deformed? Or the person who is suddenly afflicted with MS? Or what about those people who've been molested as a child? If God is good and holds every life in his hands, then why would he allow or ordain these things? There is an answer to this question. One that won't satisfy the humanist, the modernist. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that his work, that the works of God might be displayed in him. This thing that we call life is not about us. This is hard for us to imagine, to understand, in our narcissistic, instant fulfillment, self-gratifying, me-centered world. But the Bible is replete with this truth. Psalm 95, 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Romans 11.36, for through him, I'm sorry, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Every person who has ever lived, has ever been created, has been created for one main purpose. That the works of God might be displayed in them. That God would be glorified in them which Romans 11.36 tells us, to him be glory forever. This includes those that will never, this side of eternity, bow down or bow the knee to Christ in submission. This truth is, just, is not just hard for us in our generation to swallow. It's been hard to swallow from the very beginning, simply because we humans think the sun rises and sets on us. But Paul addressed the purpose of the creation of all men and dealt with this thorny issue of election within the same text. Romans 9, verses 8 through 24. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, only, but also from the Gentiles. We 
All humans bring glory to God through our lives, either through his divine election and our submission to his will, in which the heavenly beings proclaim his glory, or through our willful disobedience and denial of his divinity and living a life that dishonors him, denies him, mocks him, all the while living within his creation, enjoying the blessings of him, and at the end of the day being rightly judged and cast into eternal hell. And the heavenly beings praise glory or bring glory to him. Secondly, though, this man glorified God in being the instrument used to demonstrate his power. He did nothing in that demonstration, which is why he's not on trial with the authorities. His washing off the mud was not a work in partnership with God to bring about his healing. Jesus has already proved in the healing of the lame man that he needs nothing from man in order to for his power to be displayed. The command to go and wash was just that, a command. In his life, everything that happened to up to that point of Jesus healing him was there to highlight the reality of the power of God over his creation. The same is true for you and for me. Wait. We hardly ever see people being healed. Well, even in those days, what made, this re what made this remarkable was that it didn't happen very often. Once again, this is where our thinking is off. We focus on the here and the now and ignore the real reality of the eternal, which is why it's so easy for evangelicals just to mock God in his salvation, thinking that we can bring about salvation that we, convince, that we can convince people to be saved, to accept Jesus, and then think nothing of it when it happens. We are so flip about salvation. We think it's just another card that's filled out, another mark etched on the side of the baptismal. We don't see people, ourselves, as who we really are. Enemies of God, sons of Satan, dead men walking, which is one reason why we don't evangelize. Heaven, eternity means nothing to us, which is why so often we miss the greatest miracle that God is still performing in the saving of a soul from eternal damnation. We don't proclaim the gospel. We are not doing the works of the one who sent Jesus while it's still day. And for this reason, we rob ourselves of being involved in that miracle. When Jesus said, we must be doing the works. We, he includes us in that. We miss that miracle as God takes that dead man walking, that is standing there, the one that has just heard the majesty and reality of God, the one that has just been told that they have, created, that they have committed treason against that God and will suffer for all eternity because of it. They've heard the gospel. We miss God. Take that person and transform them from a son of Satan to a son of God. We miss the miracle. We fail to evangelize and realize that all the evil that that person had done prior to that moment, every event, every second of their life prior to that moment has just been completely and eternally wiped away and just like the blindness of this man was a memory, something which, which he could compare his new life with, the same is true for that person who has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Saints, I want to admonish you to change your perspective on life. To make it your discipline in your life to think in, of the eternal. To force yourself to look at people all people, and see them as either a son of God or a son of Satan. Not as a good person or not. Not as a nice person or not. But truly see them for what they are, either dead in their trespasses and sins or not. And at the same time, force yourself to see every moment of this life for what it really is for the glory and majesty of God. 
We miss seeing God around us because we are so busy about our every day. Did you notice the bird that landed right there in front of you? That one that is so brightly colored, that is amazing in, amazing in the exactness of the design and color on it? God sent that bird at that moment in order that you would be amazed at him and bring glory to his name. Did you notice the sunrise? Did you look at the sunset? Did you glance up and see the impossible beauty of the clouds as they are moving and changing above our heads? All these things God did in order that the works of him might be displayed in you and that you would bring glory to him when you recognize them for what they are, his works, his creation, his world, all for his glory. Realize that your life will bring glory to God, either through his saving your soul from your self-imposed eternal damnation or through you getting and or through you getting exactly what you deserve. One of the two. A life in hell separated from him or a life in him. Those are the choices. There's that separation. Where are you in all of this? Do you need or do you see your need for a savior? Do you see that sin that you've committed against a holy and righteous God? Then repent. Run to Christ and be saved. Bring glory to God through the salvation of your soul. But don't make the mistake of thinking that God is going to make your life easier, make you more happy, and make you more successful here. Because he may just and very often does the exact opposite of this for his children. He does this for our good and his glory. But if he has saved you, seek him in order that your life will bring great glory to him. And in doing so, when you do this, you will find that he is the joy, the desire that your heart has longed for for all eternity.